With that, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 4. Just invite you to pull your Bible out and flip over there. Uh, James is a pretty short book, but your Bible should be uh, starting to open itself there, maybe. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, there's one in the pew near you. And uh, as always, if, if you don't have a Bible of your own or one you can read easily, um, keep this one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Um, and so, uh, but right now, when you have God's Word open in front of you, um, I have nothing to say. I have nothing of value from my, uh, my head. My kids will tell you that. Uh, probably shouldn't, but... Um, it's all about God's word. It's his wisdom that we need. And uh, so we want to go to God's truth together. Um, last week, we looked at James, this, this piercing question uh, from, from chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? I don't know about you, but I found it a particularly convicting definition that followed. That true godly wisdom maybe isn't what we look at immediately. Maybe isn't exactly as we define it by our own wisdom. But it's humility and purity. It's seeking peace through gentleness and reasonableness, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's the kind of wisdom that God is calling us to. This week, as we move into chapter 4, um, James asks another similar question, kind of drawing out a little more the, the sinful heart that, that corrupts and undermines that godly wisdom, that true wisdom. Chapter 3 ended uh, with the promise of the, the fruit of godly wisdom. Here's what it produces. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then chapter 4 kind of has this shocking question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? So true godly wisdom brings peace and, and righteousness, but look around. Why are there still fights? Why are there still quarrels? Why are there still church splits over petty arguments? Why are there divisions and tension between brothers and sisters, even husbands and wives? What's causing this? We still live in this world of conflict, quarrels, and fights around us. What a crucial question. This matters. This matters for our church, for our unity, together, striving together for the, uh, for the glory of God. This matters for our friendships, our small groups. This matters for our marriages. What causes these fights and quarrels? And James lays out for us that at its root, it's a love for the world. Remember James 3, verses 14 and 15, um, that, that counterfeit wisdom, the false wisdom, is, is driven by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's earthly and unspiritual, even demonic, James says. In chapter 4, he shows the root of that uh, is a love for the world. That love for the world, as we'll see here uh, in the first few verses of James chapter 4, um, that love for the world will destroy your relationships it will disfigure your prayer, and, and it will, at some point, display a, a counterfeit faith. Let me read it for us, and then we'll make our way through the text together. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it uh, cuts us, that it divides our hearts, that it shows us uh, our need for you. God, as we looked at true wisdom, your wisdom, and we're um, confronted and convicted of our lack of it. Um, Lord, I thank you that you are gracious. Lord, I pray that you would continue um, to build us, to grow us, to deepen our understanding this morning um, as we look at what causes fights and quarrels. God, um, we are not a perfect people. We are a broken and bruised bride. And Lord, we want to grow. Um, we want to be um, rid of this love for the world. We want to be done with quarreling and fighting to be a church that is unified together in joy for the glory of your name. So God, would you be at work this morning? Lord, would you be with my words as I speak? Would you, um, Lord, would they be true to your word? If I have anything uh, to say this morning that is not true um, to your word, God, would those words just fall to the ground? Would they not be heard? But God, would you take your word as you have promised that it would go out and not return void, but accomplish what it has set out to do in our hearts and our lives um, for the good of your church, for the glory of your name. God, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see first here, verses 1 and 2, um, the love of the world destroys relationships. This is huge. What causes quarrels? What causes these fights among you? The bottom line is love of the world. James says, is it not that your, your passions war within you? Uh, that word passions, there's the Greek word hedone, from which we get our English uh, hedonism. Um, it's this kind of unrestrained, um, relentless pursuit of pleasure. In other Greek writings, it's sometimes used kind of generically, neither good nor bad. Um, but in the Bible, it's consistently used in a negative way. It relates to our sinful, selfish pleasures, desires, self-indulgent, earthly pleasures that we run after, our passions of the flesh. And you can see the negative tone even here. It's these passions that are at war within you. Um, the idea is not that the passions are fighting against something necessarily, not here. Um, the word war there is actually a participle, maybe better translated, the, the passions that are warring within you. It speaks of their, um, their power, the fact that they're um, kind of raging within us. Our desires for worldly, earthly things are strong. And it is our love for the things of the world that causes these quarrels and these fights that, that damages and destroys the relationships around us. He uses very strong language here. Um, you desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and can't obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. Um, I think all of these words um, are used metaphorically. Um, fight and quarrel are, are commonly used metaphorically in this way to speak of, kind of more verbal disagreement. Um, the words themselves are, are, are terms of warfare. Um, fight and quarrel um, are kind of escalating terms. Literally, it could be like you, you battle and you war. So it speaks of the individual skirmishes and the overall war. The word murder is a little trickier. Um, it's not typically used in a metaphorical kind of way like that. And so it's a bit odd to find it here. What does James mean? What is he saying? You, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. James is filled with things that echo uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, maybe this is a nod to Jesus' teaching. Um, whoever hates his brother in his heart has, has committed murder in his heart. Saying that your love for the world, when you don't get what you want, it, it produces this, this hatred, this animosity in you toward another brother that, that's tantamount to murder. It might just be hyperbole, um, speaking of how they would attack one another, how they would go after one another, try to destroy each other. Um, it's not entirely clear what James means. Um, I will say, however, uh, it would seem very strange if the church was actually literally murdering one another, and this is all James has to say about it. I think it would take up a little more real estate in his book uh, if this was literal. Um, and so I, I take it metaphorical along with those others. This is them fighting, bickering, squabbling. But here's the point. Be on guard. Look at your own life. Look closely at these things. Um, anyone else have conflict ever in their life? Is that just me? You guys run into this? Um, is there tension building between you and your spouse? Is there a storm brewing between you and your, and your neighbor? Where does it come from? Well, your passions, your, your desires are warring within you. You desire what you don't have, you covet and can't get it, and that causes these, this turmoil. One of, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, follies that we have as humans is that we trust ourselves. We, we trust, we highly value our desires. The world embraces it. They, they celebrate it. They say uh, a thousand times a day, follow your heart, be true to yourself, believe in yourself. That's right at the root of the problem. James 1, 14 and 15 um, has already shown us where sin comes from. Where does sin begin? Well, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? His own desires. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings about death. The heart is the problem. Don't follow your heart. Don't believe in yourself. Don't be true to yourself. Be, be incredibly suspicious of your heart. Be critical of the things that you want, the things that you love. Question them. Press on them. Make them submissive to the word of God. Are these things that I should want or do I need to reorient my heart? 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, those who, those who are living in this world, but we don't belong here, right? We're what Jesus says, we're, we're in the world, but not of the world. We're citizens of heaven as we live here. As sojourners and exiles, abstain 
from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. The passions of your flesh are seeking to destroy you. That's unsettling. That's, that's not easy. It makes sense to us to, to envision the enemy out there. Satan is trying to tempt me. He's trying to get me. The world is opposed to me. They're trying to, to, to push me down. But the most significant and dangerous enemy that we have, the thing that most threatens your joy and your life and your peace is not outside you. It is inside you. It's our very own desires that war against our soul, that are poised and powerful to destroy. That's terrifying. We've got to take that very seriously. You cannot trust your desires, and you certainly cannot let those desires rule you. Because those desires, those earthly desires, first will destroy your relationships. There are so many strategies, even courses on conflict resolution, right? I mean, every premarital course, every marriage book, every manager's manual has some strategy for kind of bringing down the tension and, and de-escalating in conflict resolution. But the bottom line is this. Conflict resolution is not primarily about saying the right words. It's about what rules your heart. Next time you find yourself in the midst of a conflict, you need to ask yourself, what does my heart love so much that I'm willing to fight and quarrel to get it? What is it that I'm, that I'm desiring right now? Or what is it that I, I feel is being threatened right now that I'm not willing to give up that causes my, this, that spark to rise in me? What's causing that? What is it that I'm loving and desiring? Is my desire first and foremost for, for Christ? His sanctifying work in me and his glory, his kingdom in my life? Or is it some other treasure, some other worldly desire that I have? And it may even be a good desire, a desire for something that's right and proper. But, but when a good desire becomes a ruling desire, it becomes a sinful desire. The moment that you are willing to sin, to fight and quarrel to get what you want is the moment that that desire has become an idol in your heart, right? Because you have chosen that thing over obedience to God. You've decided that, that you will pursue and fight for that thing even if you have to disobey God to get it. And in that moment, our love for the world, whatever that looks like, the desire to be respected, the desire to be honored, the desire to feel loved or appreciated, the desire to have control, maybe some physical comfort. In, in that moment of sin, that, that desire for the world speaks louder to us, means more to us than the love of our God and our trust in, in what he has said is good and right and true. And that love for this world wreaks havoc in our relationships. By the way, it, it runs the other way as well. If you have conflict around you, if you're engaging in, in fighting and quarreling, I know it's so easy to say, no, no, it's their fault. It's those other people who are causing this. Um, it's not me. 
But if you're constantly bumping into quarreling and, and conflict in your life, that's evidence that there's a, there's a love of the world in you. There's something there. There's a desire in your heart that is misplaced. And it may not be obvious. It may not be easy to, to figure out right away what that is. That might take some careful thought, some heart surgery. I need to work to discern that. But, but you can be sure that, that it's a misplaced desire that causes these fights and quarrels in us. A love for this world that, that destroys our relationships. Not only that, but this love for the world also disfigures our prayers. Disfigures our prayers. Look at... Um, Verse 2, the end of verse 2 there, and into verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here James uh, begins a shift. First it was, how does that love for the world affect our relationships with one another? Now, how does that love for the world affect our relationship to the Lord? He sticks with this idea of, of what we lack. It's the lack of these things that caused fighting and quarreling amongst us. And, and now he says you lack them because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you ask wrongly. And so first, we just don't ask. Let's be honest. When our hearts are set on earthly things, when our love is set on, on things of this world, we, we do not find ourselves in a posture of prayer. We don't find ourselves coming humbly to the Lord, seeking him for these things. Now, like verse 2 says, we're too busy fighting and quarreling. We're employing that earthly wisdom to try to get them. But the bigger issue comes in verse 3. The problem here is not simply a lack of asking. The deeper problem is the problem of the heart. When you do ask, you still don't receive because you ask wrongly. That's all there is in the Greek. It's that simple. You ask wrongly, poorly, badly. Um, other translations try to clarify that. They, they add in, you ask with wrong motives. Um, and, and they're not wrong about that. Um, that's a helpful uh, addition. Um, James goes on to say you ask wrongly, specifically, so that you can spend it on your, on your passions, on your pleasures. That's your goal. As we saw Last week, and possibly again this morning, the book of James uh, is very reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount. There, there are just numerous themes and, and different phrases and the way he uses language that, um, that are very similar to the way that Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about God's provision, right? Remember the passage, don't be, don't be anxious about your life, what, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. Don't, don't worry about those things. The pagans worry about those things. Trust the Lord. He knows what you need. How does he end that section? Uh, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All right, keep your heart focused on the kingdom of God on the things of the Lord rather than the things of this earth. Let, let that be your driving motivation, your desire of your heart, and let that be reflected in your prayers. A heart that's, that's ruled by the king, that's focused on, on his kingdom and his glory, that's the heart that will have its prayers answered. That's also where our ultimate joy will be. Just prior to that section, Matthew 6, uh, 19-21, Jesus says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. It's, it's fragile. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where, there ne- where neither rust, moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those who love the Lord, who treasure Him, who set their desires on Him and find their joy and their hope in Him and in His kingdom, they're storing up eternal treasure. They're storing up treasure in in heaven. That treasure uh, is untouchable. It's unshakable. It's an inheritance kept in us as Joshua, kept for us as Joshua had earlier, kept in heaven. It's full joy that that is unassailable. But those who love this world, whose hearts are focused on the the here and now, the things that this world values, the the wealth, the prestige, the honor, the respect, the comfort and pleasure here, their prayers are disfigured. They're they're hollowed out, deformed prayers that, that value lesser things. At best, those things are just temporary and fragile. At worst, they're, they're self-destructive. The phrase here, um, to spend it on your pleasures, rings in my ears reminiscent of the prodigal son, doesn't it? It's the same kind of request. Father, give me what you owe me. Give it to me now so that I can go and, and spend it on my pleasures. My worldly passions. God, give me your good gifts so that I can have success in this world. So that I can run after the things that that you've forbidden, the things that you've said will destroy me and dishonor your name. Now, I need to make a bit of a self-correction here. I know that I've said in the past that the, the prosperity gospel is nowhere to be found in the Bible. I was wrong. Here it is. This is it. This is the very description of what is so often preached today and masquerades itself as the gospel. Trust God. Believe in him, and he will give you the things of this world, right? He will give it to you so you can spend it on your passions. Believe God, and he will make you wealthy. He will give you perfect health. Believe in God, and you will be respected and liked. You'll be important in this world. They use God as a tool to get to earthly gain. That's exactly what James is talking about, asking, praying to God with the goal of worldly pleasure. And, and James says that is asking wrongly. It's backwards. It's the wrong motives. Valuing the things of this world over and above God and, and then asking God to bankroll it. This is so much worse than the prodigal son, isn't it? This is the prodigal son taking his father's inheritance, saying, essentially, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine. I'm out of here. Uh, And then returning to the Lord, but not in brokenness and humility, but rather arrogantly demanding more. Dad, I spent it all. Can, Can you cut me another half million? It's unbelievable. This is what is being preached today in in churches across. Our nation, charlatans who tell you, just send me a little seed money and, I'll, and, and, and God will reward you with multiples. Who use God as this tool to build up your own self-esteem, trust in God, and, and you'll be this, this great, wealthy, prestigious person. Listen to me, these people, 
Do not just preach a bit of a watered-down gospel. It's not, it's not a gospel that's just kind of off by a couple degrees as if that would be okay anyway. This is an anti-gospel. It's 180 degrees. They do not love the Lord. They love the world. They're ruled by their passion for worldly things so much so that they're willing to use God and use God's word to try to get that. This is the wolf's in sheep's clothing that scripture warns us about. Do not give them your ear. Do not be taken in by the love of this world just because it's dressed up in the language of Christ with a, with a couple of Bible verses salted in. Look carefully at what you listen to, what you read. Does it seek first the kingdom of God? Does it, does it promote a love for this world of selfish ambition and worldly wisdom? I, I know this is, a, this is an easy target and there are many others, but... But frankly, Joel Osteen just makes this so eminently clear. He's the perfect example of what this looks like. Your best life now. That's it. Your best life here on this earth. All of the worldly treasures. That's the definition of what James is saying is totally wrong. And he's not alone. This teaching is all over the place. Some places more subtle than others. Um, I don't know if it's still popular. There was a Rachel Hollis and the whole girl wash your face thing. That, that's the same ball of wax, right? Here's what you need to do. These, these worldly things to make yourself happy, to give yourself a good life. Where's Christ in that? Where's repentance? It's not there. It misses the target. It's, it's focused on worldly wisdom and, and, and worldly prosperity. Be on guard. Watch carefully for the, the love of the world dressed up in Christian clothing. But here again, um, as much as we need to be on guard for what is out there, so much more so we need to be on guard for what is in our own hearts. There's a reason that draws us so strongly. We need to be seeing what's happening in our own hearts. What, what's the focus of your prayers? Do you pray? Because if that love for the world has crept in and is pulling leverage on your soul, um, it's easy to just let prayer go. Prayer doesn't really serve those purposes. It doesn't seem necessary anymore. And when you do pray, what's the focus? What's the desire of your heart that, that, that you bring before the Lord? Do you pray for worldly things? Things that moth and rust destroy. Things that, that are of earthly value and not eternal gain. Where's your treasure? Because the, the location of your treasure will tell you the direction of your heart. The love of the world, um, it destroys our relationships. It, it disfigures our prayers. But finally, and by far most significantly, it, it ultimately displays a counterfeit faith. We've been talking about how James lays out throughout his book, True and False Faith. What does is, what is true Christianity, true faith look like? And this is a marker of counterfeit faith. This is the real consequence of the love for the world. And James is in the strongest language that, that is in this whole book. Look at, at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity before, toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. They're not parallel tracks. You can't have both. Now, before we get into verse 4 too deeply, I want us to jump to verse 5. It's always encouraging as you're studying a passage and uh, one commentator and then the next uh, begins to say things like, this is one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament uh, to translate. You're like, oh, goody. Um, there, there are just a litany of questions to be asked here. Um, and, and the first is that there's just no clear answer to what scripture James is quoting, right? So he says, um, you know, the scripture says, and, and, and then these words aren't found in the Old Testament. We don't know where they are. Um, some people say, well, maybe he's quoting um, kind of secondary sources or some apocryphal book or lost book. Um, I don't think that's the case. Um, but we don't have a clear parallel in the Old Testament, which means we don't have somewhere to go to say, well, you know, what does it mean here? Well, we can go back to the original context where we don't have that. So that's one question. And then... The next is, is, is just looking at the grammar of this phrase. It's, it's just very grammatically vague. And, and you can see that if, if you just open up a few different translations, and, and you'll see they, they take it different ways. Um, they're not looking at different Greek texts. The, 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 the manuscript evidence for this is actually um, pretty unified. Um, but it's difficult to translate. So it could be read um, the way the CSB translates it as well as the, the King James Version, um, that the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. Okay, so it's the spirit in us is what is jealous. Now, there's still another question. You can take that two ways. Which spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit that God has given us that is jealous for us, for our worship? Or is it the human spirit that God has put in us? And if that's the case, as uh, I believe the, the King James puts it, um, it's the, the human spirit in us is, is jealous in a bad way, is longing, lusting for the world. And so it could be um, that the, the spirit that God has put in us is jealous. On the other hand, it could be the way the ESV translates it, as well as the NASB and others. Um, not that it's the spirit that is jealous or passionate, but that it is God who is jealous. And he's jealous for the spirit he made to dwell in us. Again, Holy Spirit or human spirit um, could go either way. And so th those are just some of the moving pieces as we look at this. How do we understand it? And then there's questions about the words used. Does that word jealousy always have sinful connotations? Is it not appropriate to use that of the Lord? Um, if these are adulterous people, if he uses language that strong, should we expect them to have the Holy Spirit in us? Does that make sense? Um, now, in the Lord's mercy, you'll notice um, we're not talking about the difference between truth and error here, right? Yes, it's unclear. We're not sure exactly what it means. Is it A, B, or C? But, but either way, um, it's teaching things that are, that are actually taught elsewhere in, in God's word. Either it's telling us that our human spirit is sinful, which is true and biblically taught, strongly desires the things of this world, or that the Lord is a jealous God who desires our allegiance, which is also taught in Scripture frequently. So both of those are true. Um, both are clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. Um, 
And, and there are just there are a handful of these verses in Scripture that are just hard to understand. Even, even Peter, the end of 2 Peter, he says that Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. Like, oh, thanks, Peter. I feel better. Um, apparently, James is in the same category. Um, and, and yet, none of those difficult verses have any significant bearing on, on the core Christian doctrines. Right? The things that are important, God has laid out for us so clearly and in multiple places. Um, there's no debate about that. Um, there are just a few of these verses like this one where we go, ah, does it mean this or does it mean that? Um, now, there's a ruling principle of interpretation and in how you deal with some of these challenges, um, and, and, and it is this, that context is key. The context of the passage, the, the paragraph and book that it's in, uh, should be the most significant factor. And so let's go back to verse 4 and work our way through this verse. And, and uh, I think, at least for me, it, it leads me to land in one position, though not very strongly. Um, James says, verse 4, you adulterous people. And he picks up on this Old Testament prophetic language that... The, the people of God, first Israel, now the church, um, are as the bride of the Lord. And when they turn from him, it's, it's like adultery. Uh, Jeremiah 3.20, the Lord said to Israel, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. James explains, you don't get it. Right? Your friendship with the world, your, your love for the world, your association and, and identifying with the things of this world, it's, it's enmity toward God. It's not a small thing. It's hatred. It's, it's hostility. It's betrayal against the God who loves you. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Right? You, can't, you can't live in the home of your God and expect his, his care and protection and provision and favor um, as a loving husband while you sneak out at night to meet up with your mistress, to, to take pleasure in the things of this world, betraying him and, and setting your heart on earthly things, to befriend the world, to make the world your, your close companion, to identify with the ways of this world is to make God your enemy. It's betraying God in the most personal and painful way imaginable. Uh, it, it's akin to an adulterous wife. My guess then as we move into verse 5 is that when James refers to the Old Testament, um, he's not quoting a specific verse. I think he's just kind of saying generally the scriptures teach this. Doesn't the Bible say? And I think the context fits best with the meaning that the Lord as our loving creator, as the, the God who has been betrayed, as a, as a husband betrayed in adultery, adultery um, jealously longs for our human spirit, for the spirit of the, the human life that he made to live in us. He's rightly jealous for the worship that is due him, like a, like a good husband is, is jealous, is longing for the affection of his wife. He wants to have this secure, monogamous relationship. Exodus 20 verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34 14. For you shall worship no other God, 
For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Zechariah 8.2 Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion, his people Israel, with a great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. God is a jealous God. He does not give his glory to another. He's created us to worship him. And of course, it's not just these few specific verses that that teach this. It's the whole thrust of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, just walk through it from from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to Noah's Ark to the the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings to the stories of of the judges and David and Solomon and the kings and the exile and the prophets. All of it is God saying, no, worship me. Don't go running after the things of this world. Don't go running after the pagan gods. I am a jealous God. Worship me and me alone. He's created us for his glory. He's made us for himself that, that we, in, the, in our overflowing joy and satisfaction in him, might be this proclamation and display of his glory. And we turned away. We ran after created things rather than the creator. And what does that say about him? Right? What does an adulterous wife imply by her actions about her husband. She implies that he's not enough. There's something lacking there. He's nice and all, but I need to go somewhere else to be fully satisfied. I need something else in my life. That's why friendship with the world is enmity toward God, because it it puts us in, in in the complete opposite position of what he's created us to be. It makes us people who defame his name. Paul says in Philippians 3, for many who I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They're ruled by their physical desires. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Paul's warning, even with tears, don't do it. Don't get sucked into this. Don't set yourselves up as an enemy to to Christ himself. And there are many, many who have walked out from the church, who have abandoned the Lord to seek after their worldly pleasures, their minds set on what's important here and now and not looking um, to his kingdom. Paul's own ministry companion, Demas, was among them. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul urges Timothy, come to me soon. You can just kind of hear the the brokenness in in his voice. Come to me as soon as you can. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This was one of his brothers that he was training up to be a minister in the church. And he decided, no. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna live for today. I'm just gonna go after worldly comforts. Some of you have friends, family, maybe even close partners in the faith who have who have gone this way, whose love for the world eventually won out. There have been those from among this very fellowship who have walked this path, who have at some point said, I'm I'm just done. 
I'm not interested in, in going this way anymore. I'm going back to the world. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. These are those of whom Paul or the Lord spoke of in, in Luke 8, the parable of the sower. Some of that gospel seed goes out uh, onto thorny ground. And Luke 8, verse 14, Jesus says, As for what fell among the thorns, the seed of the gospel that fell among this thorny ground, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit doesn't mature. They get caught up, entangled, choked out by the, the, the love of this world. And, and their, their reception of the gospel never bears fruit. They spring up quickly like the others. They, they claim to be believers. They look like believers for a time until their love of the world is eventually displays as a counterfeit faith. Displays that they're, they're still enemies of God. The Lord is jealous for our love, for our worship of him. This love for the world that we so often overlook, that we get comfortable with, we let it just kind of creep in a little bit here and there. It's adultery against the Lord himself. It defames his glory. And in the case, in, in this case, the, the adultery does not tell us about the character or the ability of the husband. It does not mean that there's something lacking in the glory of God, but rather it tells us about the short-sighted, foolish, corrupted mind of the unfaithful wife. The problem's not in God, the problem's in us. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, John makes a very similar warning he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And so there it is, this, this love of the world that is enmity, that is, that is divisiveness against God. But look where John goes next. He says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The, the promise of the world will prove to be empty lies. The world is passing away. It will be burned up. It will be done. All of the promises of this world that we get so quickly enamored with will be shown uh, to be lies. and will not last. Those who allow themselves to be consumed and drawn away by the, by the love for this world will, will not only destroy their relationships and disfigure their prayers, but ultimately, if this is what rules your heart, it's a display of a counterfeit faith. It, it shows that, that you are an enemy of God, and, and your end will be his wrath. They've set their hearts on the things that are perishing, the things that will never satisfy and the end will be the judgment of this jealous God for abandoning him. And it is a, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Next week, we're going to unpack more of the, the solution, the antidote here in the verses to come. But we just have to look quickly at verse 6. This beautiful transition. 
God is intensely jealous of our love for him, and we are this adulterous people, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What great hope. What great hope. To those who are proud, to those who will defend themselves and, and argue back to God and, and who, will, who will stand in defiance against him and fight against him in their worldly wisdom, God will oppose them. God will crush them. God will make an eternal display of his righteousness and his glory in their destruction. But to those who will humble themselves, to those who will come before him in brokenness and humility, there's grace. There's a God uh, who is gentle and kind. Those who will, who will look to their relationships and say, there's, there's brokenness here. And that's a result of, of sin in, in my heart. I have, I have misplaced love that is causing this, this tension and this trouble. God, I need help. Those who will look at their prayers or their lack of prayer and say, I struggle. And I'm tempted and my heart is so distracted by these earthly things. To those who will come to the Lord with, with brokenness and repentance, with, with admission of guilt, with, with admission of their own adulterous heart, there's grace, there's forgiveness. There's the cross of Jesus Christ where our penalty was paid in full. Where our sins can be forgiven, covered, wiped out if we'll only submit to him in humility. What a wonderful thing that the call here is not be perfect. I couldn't handle it. Have nothing to do with this world. Never be distracted by this world. Who of us would pass that test? But the call is humility, repentance. Which defines you? Do you fight and stiffen your neck? Are you the one who's going to say, no, I'm doing okay. Leave me alone. Back out. I'll deal with this. I'll cover this. I don't need to change. My sin's not the problem. It's everyone else's sin. The things that I love, those are, those are fine. That's, that's, that's just my business. I can defend the way that I live. Are you willing to come to the Lord? Come to the fellowship of the church and brothers and sisters and look critically into your own heart, expecting to find sin. Right? We should not be shocked to find corruption and sin in our own hearts. We expect to find it. We don't excuse it. We don't try to cover it ourselves, but we bring it to the surface. We say, Lord, here it is again. I need help. I need Christ. This is the bottom line. You are a sinner. You do have misplaced loves, whether you recognize it or not. You will fight with this adulterous heart as long as you live in this world. The question is, will you proudly defend it and try to excuse it, cover over it, or will you come to the Lord in broken humility, admission of sin, Skeptical of self and relying only on the grace of Christ. Salvation is not about just a, a one-time admission of guilt and ask for forgiveness and now I'm done with that. 
It is a lifelong process, a journey of continuing on in in ongoing repentance of sin and faith in the Lord and and a reorienting of our hearts away from the love of this world, away from those things that shine and sparkle and lie to us and will destroy us and turning again to trusting and seeking the glory of God above all else and, and walking more and more every day in obedience to him.